So I wanna do this, I wanna pick back up. This is our Rise series. And uh, I shared last week a message on the healing of the lame man. And I wanna, the man who was born lame and healed in Acts 3. And I wanna review that and sort of complete this because there's a second part to it that I wanna share. But it's not just about sharing what happened. It's also something that I want God to perhaps stir us towards. So let me quickly, if you have your Bible, your Bible app, you have the, this is not gonna, this part is not gonna be in the handout. I did ask them to scroll it. I'm gonna reread uh, verses one through 10 from Acts three, okay? This is to reset from where we left off. I'm just gonna mostly read it through. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, it was the ninth hour. We talked about this, they were on their way to pray in the afternoon when God interrupted their plans with a divine appointment. And when we, by the way, are ordering our lives to do the will of God, we should not be surprised, especially if our ears are open to his promptings and his voice, we should not be surprised or shocked when he, he does wondrous things. It might be small, it might every now and then be something just amazing and extraordinary, but a lot of times we, if we are open to small little miracles and divine conversations, we will find that at that openness, if we start our day that way, that God will often lead us into divine appointments. This was one of those moments. It says, a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And, he, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and I have no gold, but I, what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And there's a great, a great truth in what we just read and what we just looked at. And I, it was something I actually did uh, want, you know, want, I think I mentioned it last week, actually, in one of the Rise and Shines. The idea is this, that before we can rise up, we have to look up. Before we can rise up, we must look up. And this is a great, simple, but profound spiritual truth. That there are things that we come to in our lives that how we choose to position ourselves will make all the difference. If we choose to look up, where, listen to what I'm saying, where we look makes all the difference, doesn't it? It makes all the difference. If we look at circumstances, situations, what people are doing, our own feelings, we can get ourselves wrapped up into a pretzel, especially those of us who are overthinkers. And you know who you are, and I know who I am, because I'm one of them. Here's the thing, where we look makes all the difference. Before we can rise up, we have to look up. Always turn to the Lord first. The more complicated it becomes, the more important it is to look in his direction. Look up. Look up. Okay, if you were to read the book of Acts, what would follow is a message from Peter. In that third chapter, it becomes his second message. 
he shares it. And um, here's the thing. After he preaches, or as he's preaching, as he's proclaiming in the temple what, what the Lord has done and who he is and Jesus and talking about so many different things you can read about it, he's arrested. And this is where we pick up. You can follow the handout on this one. Or again, start going with Acts 4, verse number 1. We read about it. I'm, I'm intentionally jumping over his message and into what happened at the end of it in the temple. It says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in, in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So Peter and John and, and it seems the man, was, they, were, they were put into prison, right? Now, who are the Sadducees? You read that and you go, who are, what's, the, what's the Sadducees? Some of us know, some of us may not know. What is that? Well, they were one of the two primary ruling parties of the day. For the most part, Israel at the time had two, two ruling parties, not dissimilar from what we have, right? Uh, they were political religious parties. They had been permitted by Rome. Israel was always given, the Jewish people were always given a large swath of autonomy by Rome. Uh, part of it was just for pragmatic reasons that Rome felt that they could keep the peace better with, with it. Sometimes Rome would come in and they would obliterate a political system in a ruling class. But in this case, the Jewish people were given more room. They had two religious parties at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Some of us will remember that one of the Pharisees at this moment was a younger man, not a young man, but a younger man, who was being trained under one of the greatest Pharisees of that day, a man named Gamaliel. That man's name was Saul, who would later become Paul. He just didn't know what was going to happen in his life yet, and nor did anyone else. But there, these two great parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were both um, powerful. The Sadducees were the smaller but, but more powerful. They, were the, they represented more of the wealthy class. They also didn't, they believed in God, but they did not believe, they were more secularists in this sense, they didn't believe in the supernatural, and they did not believe in the, in the resurrection as a principle. Whereas the Pharisees were more intertwined into the scriptures, and uh, they did believe in God's miraculous movement, and they had actually a tension point with the Sadducean party, ironically, over the issue of resurrection. Like, what happens to you after you die? So this is just to be aware of that, because when these uh, authorities heard the ruckus that was being made by the healing of the layman, and then the ensuing message of Peter that was proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, they were irritated, disturbed, or as the scripture says, greatly annoyed at it. And so the temple authorities had all three of them arrested. Now, you wonder what went on in the mind of Peter and John that night. When... Jesus was on earth. Um, this was the treatment he had told them they would ultimately receive. And now it was actually happening. For Peter, it must have been a kind of full circle moment, a redemptive moment, actually, right? Remember, he had, remember what had happened earlier? He had told Jesus, I am willing to go to prison and die for you. I am. But he had denied Jesus. He had renounced him emphatically broke with him, um, much to his shame. But now, months later, 
uh, that vow was now being fulfilled. It was a full circle moment of God's redemptive capacity to take what looked like a broken, devastating chapter of his life. And by the time the Lord was done, Peter was now becoming the man that Jesus had said he would be a rock that could be built on. The satisfaction of that thought, whatever anxiety for the morrow, must have been to him a gift unparalleled as he closed his eyes. I think he slept well in that prison cell. Verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of just the men alone came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all of who were of the high priestly family. You're getting specific names. It is embedded in a historical context. And when they had said, set them in the midst, they brought them in. They inquired, by what power or by what name, authority, do, did you do this? Now, Okay, let me lay this out foundationally. This group that assembled was known as the Sanhedrin. The body that was the governing body, again, allowed by Rome, centered in Jerusalem, and specifically interested in the temple. This body consisted of the elite and the most highly regarded of all Israel. Historically, it represented, I just want us to understand where they were being brought in front of. Historically, it represented the 70 elders who were chosen by Moses in the wilderness um, in his administration of the Exodus march when they left Egypt. The high priest would preside, and around him in a semicircle sat the leads of the 24 priestly classes, the doctors of the law and the fathers of the ancient Jewish family. So this was the group that Peter and John were being brought before, as well as the man who evidently uh, was healed. And... Now, remember, this was the same governing body that just a, a few uh, you know, days earlier, a couple of months earlier, had deftly maneuvered to have Jesus turned over to the Romans, right? So it was just a few months earlier that that same group had done that. Now in the same chamber, they are preparing in their mind to stamp out once and for all this Galilean heresy, right? Note how they went about their business. It would have been foolish to debate the miracle. The man stood right there. What could they do about it? Nor would it have been prudent to challenge the disciples on the issue of the resurrection, which Peter had been proclaiming, because the resurrection of Jesus is what Peter had proclaimed. But, the, but remember what I told you earlier. The resurrection conceptually in that day would be, like one of, would be like a polarizing issue today. You can think of some of the most polarizing issues at a sociopolitical perspective, out of that a religious layer or a moral layer, and you get an idea of what was going on here. The, 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 uh, if the Sadducees decided to make the issue around the, the Peter and John proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, they would have polarized that body. They would have split, uh, put a tension point between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which they didn't want. So they held, their, they held back, and they took a very different tack. No, the way to approach was clear. They would go in this way. By what power or by what name have you done this? How did you, what, notice, not did you do it, 
Not about what you've been saying about what the power behind it, what, what, but in terms of the resurrection issue. No, what is the name and the authority? By what power or by what name did you do this? It was a subtle and strategic question. I know we look at it and we go, what are you talking about? It is, because to attribute the power to God would have been safe and acceptable. But to attribute the miracle to, say, some other name or entity would have made them vulnerable as heretics and sorcerers working with dark spirits. Here's the thing. That simple, subtle question was a potentially deadly and devastating question. (laughs) It was a deadly accusation as well. The seriousness of their dilemma, apparent in light of what they had already done to Jesus, right, was obvious. What am I saying? Peter knew, as did John, this group was not afraid to pull a trigger. Every step now was a treacherous one. What would they do? What would they say? Would they back away? How would they answer the question? It didn't seem to phase Peter one way or the other at this point. It's almost like he had crossed that bridge already. He wasn't going back. For some of us, there are moments in our lives where we decide finally, once and for all, I'm crossing the bridge with Jesus and I'm not going back ever to what I was, ever. It is gone. Peter's failure and his recovery had been so intense and so pronounced, so real. He was afraid of nothing at this moment. Look what happens. It says then Peter, look at verse 8. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed that is done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Then let it be known to all of you. Now, why Peter is now talking in front of very powerful people. Men who have... And he steps out and he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then whom you crucified. Now, they didn't literally crucify him, but they delivered him up to be crucified. It was a joint effort. Romans were also, they did it. They killed Jesus. But it was an entire cooperation of powerful forces at work. This same Jesus whom you crucified, whom God, by the way, has raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. And look at this verse. Ah, has even more meaning for us as a church. You'll see why. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. I'm telling you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation In no one else, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It was a stunning response. Not one that they were prepared for. They were not prepared for that. Now when they saw, look at verse 13, just two left. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived, that is, they were trying to work it through, that they were uneducated, common men. They knew that. And they were astonished. They were shocked 
at the tenacity, the, the, the language, the presence and the tone and the conviction that was being given. It says they were astonished and they recognized that they had, well, look at that, that they had been with Jesus. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Nothing to say. What is here for us? What is here for us? They, what are they going to say? What is here for us? A couple of things. First, what do they take note of? Their boldness, the strength of their response, the absence of their fear. And it made me wonder, and I'm gonna, I, I want to ask you a question. Are there areas where we, you and me, are being asked to be less, and put this up, to be less afraid and rise up in boldness on behalf of Jesus? It's a question that I'm asking. I'm not talking about being obnoxious or insensitive or discounting the protocols of the working culture. Um, I am talking, however, about refusing to be intimidated by peer pressure and silence in our confession. We can share Jesus in appropriate and respectful ways, and we have to if we truly love him. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God that can change a person and save them. We are to live out our faith in Jesus and invite others into life with him. But at a more personal level, do we have conversations with people about Jesus? Or have we been, for whatever the reason, silent? Some of us need to connect the dots. We, we need to let people know the why in our life. It's all there but the why. And to connect the dot to the Lord is what brings a different kind of expression to it. People may appreciate us. They may appreciate our work. They may appreciate um, certain things about us, our care, our love. Uh, perhaps these should be characteristics of our life. The kindness should be noted by people, our good works. Uh, these things should be noted. But there at some point needs to be, especially for those who are, we are either working most closely with or around, there needs to be a way of, of allowing others insight into the deepest place of, of who, what we love and build our life around and what has really transformed our life, and that is Jesus. Basically, what I'm saying is in our relationships with our friends, um, we need to connect the dots. We need to remind others about our love for the Lord. And again, I didn't say be obnoxious. I didn't say be, be uh, you know, annoying. <laughs> but I do think that there needs to be thoughtful ways, courageous expressions with humility and kindness and prayer about how to disclose our love for the Lord and the difference the risen Savior has made in our lives and is making. And those who claim to love him must talk about him. I've never heard of anyone whom we love that we don't talk about. <laughs> um, and, and there's some of us now in this new era, you're really good at social media. You have a, both a gift and an addiction. No, I'm kidding. I mean, you have a gift. <laughs> some of you are actually mavens or really good at, at mobilizing and sharing. Here's, here's one way to redeem it. 
you know, as we were talking about it, is, is, is find strategic ways to display your love for the Lord appropriately within the framework of your communications. Sometimes I might have to do it, you know, some of you are really good at it. You know what? There's a man in our church whose name I will not mention yet who has actually, he, he actually shared this with me last week and he reminded our team again of it. He's been using Rise and Shine in the morning. It caught us off guard because we originally just did Rise and Shine for our own community to stay connected and be encouraged. That was it. But he's actually been using Rise and Shine as a tool to share the message of Jesus and encourage. And he told us yesterday, he had, he, what he does, there's a button that you can press, sends it off, right? But you, it still is a little effort. He has a list of 51 people. It's not, like a, it's not so simple as it seems. He, he devotes a good chunk of, of the morning, about 10 minutes of his time, he told me. And he sends it off. And he's been getting a tremendous amount of movement. It's created conversation. Now someone tells him, don't do that. But they're mostly friends and family and, and people who, and, and it's allowed a conversation about Jesus. And I, and I said, you know how impressed I am with you? And I really meant it. You know, that is a shepherd's heart. That is, a, that is the, the most sincere expression of connectedness you can do, to take that bold step. And he's been doing this. And, he's, and God is really blessing that. And I'm just saying, if, if he can do that, there are ways we can do things like that as well. And we should think about the practical way in which we can put our faith into action and in bold ways, right? One, oh, so not only did the, the, the Sanhedrin, not only did the, lead, the leaders and the authorities perceive the boldness of Peter, but what was another thing they noticed? They, they noticed something else, didn't they? I love that. They perceived, as we mentioned, that they were uneducated and untrained common men. They were, because think about it, Peter was a fisherman. Now it's true, he had been apprenticed by a carpenter, <laughs> just more than a carpenter, but he was by trade. Peter is a fisherman by trade. He didn't go to school. He wasn't trained in, in the religious, I mean, he had a basic training. He had a love for scripture. All his people were very well read and versed in the traditions and the writings and the scriptures of their people. He had had an unusual interest in them, he and his brother and his friends. Part of that deep interest is what had propelled them into the circle of Jesus. And of course, to be around the Lord for that amount of time, I don't think there was any better training one could receive. He literally was trained, discipled by Jesus while Jesus was on earth. Having said that, it says that they were amazed um, because they perceived that they were uneducated, untrained, and common men. That is, they had no formal education or pedigree. But they didn't represent any family. They hadn't been placed in the best schools. They had no, they didn't sit, uh, but they did also consider this. But one more thing they noted, whoa, these guys have been with Jesus. No greater compliment could have been made. They perceived they had been with Jesus. Wow, they sound just like him. Question, can people tell we have been with Jesus? Can people tell we have been with Jesus? Can our peers, can our coworkers, 
friends, neighbors, can our family sense it, feel it? Are his words on our lips? Uh, are other words not on our lips? You say, oh, you're going to act holier than thou. No. I'd like, I would like to be in my own life with God a real deal person. Yes. I would like to have my beliefs and my actions look a lot like each other. Yes, I would. But I'm not trying to be holy. I just I want to be right before God and holy before him. But that's not my motivation to come across as some really great religious. I'm not trying to do that. I, just, I, might, I guess my question is, can people tell by the even I'm gonna, Language is a big deal today in my mind. It uh, reveals so much. Language and attitudes and everybody's angry and, and everybody's saying stuff. And even the Lord's name is just used like a, a, a doormat. A vulgarity and a, and a, and a space-filling you know, curse word. Whatever. That's the name we love. I, we speak that name. I praise him. It means something. It, is, is his love the dominant theme of our life? Is there a song in our heart? Do they know, listen, do people know we go to church and why? Is there a wisdom that reflects study and effort? Um, have we applied ourselves to learning how to rightly divide the, the scriptures and de defend, I mean this in the best way, our faith in an increasingly misinformed and, and at times even hostile culture. It, listen, it matters not if we have degrees. Listen, I, how can I say it? I have a bachelor's, I have a master's, I have an earned doctorate. It doesn't matter if we have degrees as much as what is going on inside of us. It's not theological training. It's not the letters. It's not by might, it's not by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, let us be filled with his spirit because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. That's what we're taught. That is not an anti-learning or education statement, nor is it in any way, shape, or form an anti-ambition statement or an anti-intellectualist statement. It's not. It's just saying at the end of the day, can people tell we have been with Jesus? Because if they can, it will make a huge difference. They will, they will be recognized. I just want more of him at work in my life. If I can get that, good things will happen. Let that be our quest, our goal. <laughs> Here's the last thing. Before we can rise up, which is what I said earlier, we must, what, look up? Yeah. But also let's look up when we rise up. What I'm talking about is the morning. Start our day there. Start our day there. Can people tell we've been with Jesus? It usually, it usually is connected to how we start our day. It is. You know what? What comes in is what goes out. So I've been talking about it. Start our day. That's what we've been trying to say. Let's get in the habit. Let's get in this daily habit, right? Can, you know, can people, I look at this way. So people can tell that we have been with Jesus. That's, this is, so what does that even mean? I mean, I, I mean like I'm taking it seriously. I'm pouring my heart into it. I'm talking to the Lord. I'm making space. I'm creating space. I'm honoring the Lord with my time. I'm, I'm making his words a priority in my life. I'm, even if it's just the beginning of it, I know it's going to sound, for some people it's going to say, that's, that's an insult to Jesus. But I'm saying, look, even five to ten minutes in the beginning of the day, 
if it can be done consistently and honestly and, and humbly, it will have a huge, huge impact in our lives. The consistency of the daily rhythm, you hear me talk about it all the time. The Lord says, you know, you know talks about, give us this day our daily bread. Teach us how to pray, Master. Teach us how to pray, Lord. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name, right? And then what? Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. On earth as it is in heaven, that your will be expressed through me. And give us this day, this day, our daily bread, right? This day, it's a daily life with Jesus. I rise up in the morning and I, to thank him, to acknowledge him, to welcome him, and then allowing his words to be on my mind and on my lips and in my, in my ears, and that becomes intertwined with my life and the way I work and the way I love and the way I respond, and then say, Lord, give me eyes to see, and let me be open to the divine adventure of faith where I never will know on a given day what is about to change, a life, a person, a situation in me. I'm part of, I'm cooperating with a grand theme that will go far beyond even my own life. God, remind me of that. The way of Jesus was never meant to be anything but alive. Because wherever, you know, my wife would say to me, it's interesting how light, wherever light is, darkness is chased away. Wherever life is, death must flee. And we are following a risen Savior who invites us to rise up. And when that happens, it will, we will find that not only will be, listen, not only will people be healed because of what God is doing in our lives, they will be. And some of you, are going to be healers in the name of the Lord. If you, and you have, may have already been, but some of you are going to be. And it, it matters not if you have a title or a theological degree. I've seen many of those things come and go. But to keep your heart soft before the Lord, to be a continual learner, to be childlike in spirit, be open to wonder, growing, becoming, correctable, open to the Lord. A true desire to shine his light, to be part of a great adventure of faith. That's what I call it, yes. That is signing on for something, isn't it? So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. All right. That's the encouragement for the day, all right? Yeah, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right, Father, I thank you for this. I thank you for the opportunity we had to share uh, your word together. And let us not be like the person in the book of James who sees themselves in the mirror and then forgets what manner of person they are. No, Lord, if there are things that you're trying to prompt in our hearts, again, we had very intentional things we were trying to do here, reminding us of staying close to you, representing you, um, being more bold, more committed to sharing you, more open to passing along the blessings of life, being more open to being a healer. Yes, a wounded healer in your name, but a healer nonetheless. I ask that you would again help us to utilize the tools at our disposal to be both a growing person and a person who shares, rise up and shares your life with others and invites others into life with it. I just, I just thank you, Lord. You are our cornerstone and we love you very much. Bless our time of, of giving, yes, um, but without it, we have no, we have no community. 
we be, but we ask also that you would just bless these closing minutes as we seek to honor you with this final song because it becomes a part of this message. And so I ask for your blessing over our time. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.